And they said, oh, he's just going to have a look at Mount Everest for a couple of days. He'll be back. <laughs> so they charged it to my credit card, which was really upset my room, just in case I didn't come back. And now I'm excited to learn about your life and how you got into tennis, because I don't know the story. So we have to start with how you grew up. How I grew up. I always had tennis courts at the back of my house. Uh, and the first lot of tennis courts, my grandfather had a big factory and he swapped land with the tennis club and they moved the tennis clubs behind my house and he moved his factory and took the land where he used to have the factory. So the courts became were built behind my house and uh, that's where I first walked onto the courts and uh, didn't like tennis in those days. I wanted to go to the football, but uh, we used to put two shillings in a, a wooden... Uh, a cardboard box of tennis balls in those days and that was the fee for playing two shillings to have a lesson with some of the members at the tennis club on a Saturday morning and this was in Melbourne this was in Melbourne it was in Murrumbina which I believe means land of the swamps but that's where the first courts that I ever walked onto were and you were just really good from a young age no I was terrible uh, I probably didn't enjoy tennis as much then because like didn't have much idea how to hit a ball but um, where my tennis career started to take off is my cousin was an umpire at the Australian Open and I got given the ground pass for the Australian Open in 1972 and I'd never seen top tennis players before so after I'd seen top tennis I really wanted to see what it was like to play tennis at a better level so from then on I was concentrating and playing five to six days a week at least on a tennis court. Wow. How old were you at that point? Uh, 14, 15. So you hadn't taken it seriously until No, then? no. It was really late to start playing. And then uh, I got a lucky break. I went to a tennis camp um, of Frank Sedgman, who was a Wimbledon champion, great Australian player, and uh, they couldn't get the remote control video to work, so I said, I'll fix it for you as a precocious youngster. And I ended up getting it working for him. And he said, how would you like to come and work in my tennis camps in Queensland a couple of times a year? So that was my first big break in tennis job of working at a tennis camp with a ex-Wimbledon Australian champion. And uh, it sort of all went from there. So when you saw those players at the Australian Open, was the Australian Open at Kuyong then? It was or? still at Kuyong in those days. The Australian Open was at Kuyong until 1987. In 1988, it moved to Melbourne Park, which was called Flinders Park in those days. So you saw these guys and thought, I want to do that? Yeah, because instead of just watching the local players at the local church tennis club, I was watching the best players in the world, and it was just it was so different to what I thought of, of what tennis was. And was your family supportive? They were pretty supportive, um, although I still think Mum wanted me to get me out of the house for the summer, and that's why I was given the ground pass. But at the first, my first Australian Open, I ended up going every day. I was, I was addicted and I had a pass that would get me in every day. And uh, I ended up helping it in the umpires' room, going and seeing which matches were about to finish so they could get the next lot of umpires ready. So I got to meet a lot of the umpires and, um, and I got to know the players because I'd go and watch them on courts. I wasn't officially working, but I had a job to do, going and seeing which matches were about to finish. Um, and then report back to the umpire's room so they could get ready for the next match as to whether it was going to be three sets, five sets, or how, how close the match was that I thought, how close it was to finishing. 
course this is before mobile phones and pages and all the electronic things they use these days to know what's happening in fact I think every match is televised these days so they know when a match is going to finish uh, in all the officials rooms but in these days it was uh, very early days and it was um, very early days of money coming into tennis too uh, tennis went professionally in 1968 and this was 1972 so the game only became open for um, four years um, also in 1972 they decided to keep it at Kuyong every year from then on whereas every other year it had been in a different state each year attached to a state championship so the, that was another big change of Kuyong they got uh, big sponsors to come in and uh, st who started to bring the money into the game of tennis and how quickly did you start getting good? Not quick, um, but I knew what I wanted to do and I started searching out the best coaches that I was aware of and who other people advised I should contact uh, to get better at the game. Um, there was still a lot of le levels of tennis to climb, but I started playing in junior tournaments and junior events and club championships and things like that. So. Uh, the trouble of starting when you're 15 is a lot of kids have been playing since they were 9 or 10 so they've got like 6 to 7 years on top of you of experience so you might get to the 3rd or 4th round or a quarter final but you sh the kids you're playing against have been playing so much longer and they're used to being at the top of their age group and they want to stay at the top of their age group so you've got to learn to handle that mentally you've got to um, build up your technique and um, you've got to have the right people training you um, the game certainly is a lot more professional these days, but you know, in, in my young days it was jumping on the train in school holidays and going to a, a tournament in another suburb and catching up with the same kids we did at each tournament, getting to know them and, and seeing who they were getting coached by and how much they were playing a week. And were they in state squad, which was called Shell Squad in those days? Shell used to sponsor the squads. Um, and also you could get in state teams in those days, which they don't have anymore, which I think doesn't help Australian junior tennis. Um, each state had their own Wilson Cup teams and Linton Cup teams, which were under-19 age teams. So the best players of each state would play against each other in a national carnival at the end of the year attached to an Australian championship. Um, and that was... The goal was to get in that squad so you had a chance to play for your state and then eventually play for your country. So did you do that? No, but uh, a lot of my friends were already in it, but... Um, in the end of the day, it's 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 whether you survive. The, the biggest thing, the biggest change is when you go from junior tennis to senior tennis because you can be a great junior and, and, and not last very long on the international circuit. Um, when I first travelled overseas, I actually went and looked at every tennis shop and every tennis indoor centre and a lot of other tennis businesses in the other countries because I thought in the early days when there wasn't a lot of money and not all the players on the circuit were making enough money uh, even these days they're not but there's a lot more players playing these days um, I wanted some way of making a living out of tennis without necessarily having to play to make make a living um, which is probably why I ended up with a tennis shop a tennis court business and a coaching business and as far as I know no one else has ever done that certainly in Melbourne had their own court building business with retail tennis outlets and coaching so you just loved the sport and wanted to be involved in it? Uh, from then on I did, once I'd seen the top level. Uh, and then another big break. The next year, in 1973, I had the chance to study for my exams or go down and see the Davis Cup each day and help out with the Davis Cup players. 
Now, that was 1973. We had Rod Laver, John Newcomb, Ken Rosewell and Mal Anderson. And these guys had all been world champion or number two in the world. And um, you've probably heard all the names. And I got to know them all personally. And I was sort of like the, the gopher, go for the towels, go, for, go and get whatever they wanted. And it was the best decision I ever made because from then on I knew I was going to make a living out of tennis. And if I was going to be... If I was going to... Um, fall back on something it wasn't going to be going to, to be a school teacher it was going to be something in tennis I'd fall back on there was no way after that I knew I wasn't going to be a school teacher that my parents wanted me to be um, it was just tennis from then on so you didn't care about missing your exams well I ended up getting into phys ed college at Rusden the following two years after that I ended up doing year 11 again and adding extra subjects to what I passed the first year and then I got a scholarship to Halebury to play tennis in their open tennis team and just get me through year 12 and so for just that one year I really knuckled down and just studied and played tennis for the school and got into the courses I wanted but then I realised that at the end of the day if I was going to teach I wasn't going to teach in the school I'd teach on a tennis court or or go into sporting goods something that I really loved and was passionate about and uh, involved in tennis rackets and eventually it just came all came back to tennis. So were your parents putting pressure on you to make sure you kept up your schoolwork? Yeah, I was the only relative. I was the only person in my family, including all my relatives, that had actually passed year twelve and gone on to tertiary education. And uh, and then it was, of course, well, you've got to, you know, you know, you're not working like all your relatives are. <laughs> so I said, I'll, I'll leave the teaching course and I'll, I'll go and go and go and get a working job. And I left home pretty early after that. And. Uh, ended up working for some of the major sports stores in, in Melbourne, which were Melbourne Sports Depot at that time and Merritt Hassett Sports Specialists. And uh, then I ended up leaving both of them and stringing rackets for both the companies that I used to work for and started a racket stringing business. And also I was already co- started to coach tennis as well. So those two areas started to develop and then eventually I had my own sports stores. And at what point were you on the tour? Uh, that was 1981, and juniors, obviously juniors, you play the, the different states each year, so that's sort of like from 1974 to 1980. I uh, went around the world in 81, um, and that's when I looked at all the businesses overseas, that how they were making tennis, uh, businesses that were, were um, making money from tennis. Um, and then I decided, again, I decided that uh, it's better to have businesses in tennis that you don't have to win to get your money, especially in those days, unlike these days, very different. So were you, did you still care about winning matches? Um, I what, think... What was the story you told me about in the US where you were like nearly missed your match or something? Oh, you remember that. <laughs> um... Yeah, so the first time I went to America, I got to the Hilton Hotel, JFK Hilton, and I booked a court for practice the next day at, at, at um, Flushing Meadow. And I woke up the next morning and I thought, wow, I've, I've woken up early, I haven't slept in, no jet lag. I'll go and have a look um, in New York first, go down, go downtown and have a look around. And when I went downstairs, it was about like half hour of my... Pr- I'd slept in and I, they didn't get the wake-up call and um, or I'd slept through it. And I had to race up to get my gear and grab a taxi and head off to the down to the US Open. 
and the first corner I went round in the taxi, I went jumping, diving off the seat because in America they drive on the other side of the road and I thought he was going to hit the car <laughs> as he turned around the corner. But of course he stayed on the right-hand side of the road and the car was on the opposite side of the road. But uh, it was just, you're just so used to keeping on the left in Australia. That, that's, that's what you're talking about, I'm pretty sure. I dived into the back seat of the, in the taxi thinking, oh, we're going to have a big smash. And you made it in time. Uh, I made it a little bit late, but we, we got the court um, and um, had the practice session, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I was still pretty shook up because I hadn't sort of packed properly and or unpacked properly. And I had, uh, luckily, I had to put a pair of shoes in, and a shirt and a short and a towel. I got a bit thirsty from memory in the practice court. And uh, we had it shared too, so we only had half the practice court. So you have two people on one half practicing, or you actually discuss with them how you're going to practice. But it was like four people on the practice court and two on one side, two on the other. And that's you and your coach? No, no, no. That was one of the other players um, at the tournament. The, 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 you range with someone there to have a hit with. Uh, my coach... My coach... I had different coaches. My coach wasn't a touring coach in that at that time. Um... But I remember the. I was feeling a bit um, lonely at this concrete jungle tennis centre in America, and it was qualifying the week before the main draw when everyone really arrived up. Although McEnroe and Connors were hitting on centre court, having a hit with each other, and I was feeling really lonely. And then I, I saw someone that I knew, and uh, Stephen Myers, and it was just so great to see a player from Australia that I actually knew that we could have a conversation, and that sort of grounded me a bit more than. Uh, New York's a pretty big city when you first go there, uh, from Australia. How old were you? Um, golly, 81. You're asking all these tough questions. 30, <laughs> I was going to say 20, yeah, 23, 23, 22. And that was your first time in the US? In the States, yeah. yeah. And I'd flown from Sydney, well, Melbourne to Sydney, Sydney to LA, LA to New York, all in one hit. So that's, it was... From memory, it was 23 hours of flight. And then how did your matches go? Oh, not good. Um, not enough practice, jet-lagged. Um, out very quick. I think I got two games. Um, but that didn't worry me too much. Because in qualifying? Yeah, in qualifying, yeah. Yeah, it didn't worry me. Because um, you were just interested in the business side of things. I just wasn't prepared for it, I guess. Did you know that going into it? Yeah, it's... It's, um... Gee, how do you put it? It's... I had so many places to visit booked on the trip. Like, I had to go up to Boston and Philadelphia and look at other racket clubs and that, that, that it, it was actually a small part of the trip, but it was an experience. Um, even... Straight after the match, even later that day, I remember talking to one of the Asherettes and she lived near Forest Hills and Forest Hills is where they used to have the US Open before Flushing Meadow. And she said, oh, I have to walk past here to go home. You want me to show you where it is? So we ended up walking to and going and see where all the, um, a lot of the players that I knew that, that had won at Forest Hills had played. And that's a grand old clubhouse like Kuyong is. Um, and it was, um, fascinating to see where the US Open 
used to be played on grass before it moved to Flushing Meadow on concrete or hard court. And then I ended up going to um, Rhode Island, which is where the first US Opens were held. And that was still on grass in Rhode Island. So I actually went to, when I traveled, I was actually going to visit all the venues of where all the Grand Slam tournaments had ever been played. So America had three venues and I managed to visit the other two when I was over there. And this was just out of interest? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't expect to make the quarters or anything like that. At the, you know, I was just there to experience it and 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 go to the places where the the events were, where they'd been played, and looking at other what other people were doing in tennis in the different countries and bring it back to Australia. And you were funding this all yourself. All myself, yeah, yeah. I was also very lucky. The the person that actually organised my itinerary was Brian Tobin. Now Brian Tobin. Uh, was head of CBA Travel at that stage, but he ended up becoming president of Tennis Australia, and then after that, he's the only Australian that's been president of the ITF, which is the International Fed Tennis Federation. So I had someone who'd he'd actually taken Margaret Court and Rod Laver overseas to different events, and had played the tournaments himself, and so he knew which hotels to book me into, and told me about the different places. And, and he basically did my whole itinerary for travelling to see all the different tennis places around the world in one trip. So I was very lucky. Um, luckily, I was very good friends with Brian's son, Alan, and uh, so I played a lot of junior tournaments with Alan and uh, used to live at the Tobin's house quite often on weekends. So uh, that, that made a big difference to travelling rather than just going in cold and hoping that I was staying at the right places and what to go and visit. And so what was the highlight of your playing career these are weird questions are out of order <laughs> the highlight yeah I don't know I, I haven't I haven't got one ah oh, highlight of my career um, paying for the paying for the beer for Rod Laver up in Sydney and having a night out with Rod drinking beer anyway how's that with Rod Laver when was that uh, it's about six years ago now uh, the New South Wales Open was on and I was up there for a tennis dinner for Ken Rosewell and we got back to the hotel. I was actually looking after Lou Hode's family who were out here. Um, Lou was Ken Rosewell's doubles partner and won three of the Grand Slam events one year. Sadly, he's no longer with us. And we were just in the foyer of the hotel having a quiet drink and, he, and in walked Rod Laver and uh, Mal Anderson, who was world number two. And, and um, so we sat down and I said, I'm paying for the beer and just a night of talking tennis and wonderful uh, discussions about different matches and things that had happened in history and um, yeah that was a great night um, still smiling from that even when I think about it now uh, Rod was my hero from when I was a very young boy um, we both left handers um, we'd both used the Dunlop Max Ply wooden rackets um, and then later on I, I found out that we both had birthdays on the same day so uh, to have your birthday on the same day as your hero is, um, is um, yeah, just never saw that one coming. Did you get to see him play? Yes, in the Davis Cup he won the, they, getting back to that Davis Cup match in 73 so I went and met them all by being down there every day and they won the semi-final against Czechoslovakia three, three matches to two and then they went across to America to Cleveland and they actually beat the Americans 5-love 
and I think America had won the, the last three or four Davis Cups in a row. And America, Australia went over and absolutely smashed them because it was the first time in open tennis that past professionals were allowed to play in the Davis Cup. So uh, it was, we had three world number ones and a world number two in our team. So it was no best, probably the best Davis Cup team ever in the history of the game. Um, and uh, yeah, we beat America five love. It was great. So what did you have to do to quali- to be in the qualifying for a Grand Slam? Um, different these days, you, you have to get points from playing in smaller tournaments that get you onto the computer, that give you a high enough ranking that you can quali- that you can actually get into qualifying. So these days you have to have a ranking high enough to get into qualifying, just like you have to have a, a ranking high enough to get in the main draw. In those days you could turn up, even in Australia, you could turn up to a tournament and if there was a spot in the draw you could get in because you didn't have to have... Really? That high ranking, yeah. Like I could yeah, turn up. Yeah, you could have turned up with one racket. In fact, one of my junior's fathers turned up at the straight up in here with one racket and then, and sort of like a Bermuda hat and r- rolled up at the tournament box and put his name down and it's just a matter of who, if someone pulls out or someone's not there and you're ready to go. This, it's a lot tougher these days. Um, I know Paul McNamee's brother Brian used to travel with Paul occasionally and, and if the draw was, there wasn't enough players at the draw um, he used to play as well um, it probably doesn't it probably doesn't happen these days but uh, there's lucky losers people that get in because they, they lost in the qualities but there was still a, a gap in the then maybe they got through to the third round of qualifying the three normally three rounds of qualifying you have to win to get in the main draw but maybe they lost just just lost in the last round and there was a someone pulled out of the tournament so they put one of their qualifiers in called a lucky loser um, and then you get wild cards that the National Association has a certain number of people they can put in the draw that they, they feel some up-and-coming players or players that they can feel can get into the tournament. So what's the furthest you went? Oh, well, I was only really over there that year. I mean, juniors, I played lots of years, but the, the international, I really went over to, to sit, look for business interests in tennis. Yeah. Um, but I did do some coaching in France and I did some coaching in England and I played in a small tournament in Bordeaux, which is where there was lots of red wine to drink. Um, and I went and visited all the places in Newport, Rhode Island, and Boston, Philadelphia, uh, Paris. I went to Roland Garros in Paris, went to Wimbledon in London, uh, went to Queen's Club, uh, went to a lot of, and went to look for where the tournaments used to be played before they moved to other venues. And then I went and looked at all the tennis shops and indoor tennis centres as well. So oh. that was that was my big trip to uh, work out how to set up business. And then you came back and set it up. Yeah, look, I already had a stringing business back here. It was pretty small in those days. And I had a little pro shop at an indoor tennis centre, but that's basically where I started up the commercial side. And then I got a couple of commercial accounts as well for sports stores. And we ended up stringing it for 49 sports stores eventually, um, all through... Melbourne metropolitan area. Um, we used to do trade string for the companies where they'd give us hundreds of rackets to get strung, to get picked up and then sold off, sold off to the retail store. So we'd string it. Um, basically, in the early days when rackets were coming from Taiwan, the first graphites, they were coming through strung pretty badly. So the companies decided to bring the frames in and get them strung in Australia, even though it was a little bit more expensive for them. They knew they were getting quality control for the type of racket string that they wanted to sell the top models in the retail stores so they'd bring them to us for stringing we'd 
string them up, put the stencils on the rackets, package them back up in the plastic bags and give them back to the company, then the company would send them out to the retail stores for selling, which we ended up being a retail store as well for some of the companies. Okay, shall we talk about how you ended up in the Himalayas? Ooh, uh, if you like. Um, my first wife battled cancer 17 years, 12 years of secondary. Um, our last retail shop actually had a fire and got burnt out, so we decided not to reopen it because my wife wasn't well. Uh, when she passed away, um, I decided I'd do a memorial for her at Mount Everest. And so I organised a trip to Mount Everest. Because you guys had talked about... We used to do a lot of bushwalking, so we'd talked about when she was well, we'd go to Mount Everest, but unfortunately she never got well. So I had to work out where I was going to go and visit Mount Everest, um, finding out it was on the border of Nepal and in Tibet in those days. Um, so I organised a trip to go there, and um, while I was over there, I thought, I've never coached in a third world country, I'll go and see how the tennis is set up in Nepal, and uh, wrote a lot, a lot of emails before I left and didn't get any replies. So when I was in Kathmandu, I was being driven around by couple of guys for the day showing me all these temples and sites and I'd sort of had enough of temples and I said to them look what are you getting paid today and they said something like 500 rupees which is probably about five dollars so I said I'll double that for you if you can find a lawn tennis court for me so we went to badminton centers table tennis centers and eventually we found the national tennis center which was very small in those days it was four courts two of them were only singles courts they were clay they were really run down and they were at a place like Satabat, a place called Satabato, which is a bit like a, a miniature Olympic park of Melbourne. And um, I got to meet some of the players, and uh, but that's basically how it all started. And then I eventually got to meet more of the players and uh, um, came back to Nepal. That was September, and I came back in the following December and back to the Himalayas. That was my second trip. And it ended up doing a bit of coaching, and then eventually I started a, a charity over there and, and, a, and a company called Tennis Trekking, where we ended up working with the national team of Nepal and going to remote schools and villages, taking a portable net, rackets and balls, and leaving them with balls and second-hand rackets and giving them an experience of hitting a tennis ball and teaching them about tennis and then inviting them down to Kathmandu or Pokhara if they showed any promise. And giving, so we gave them an invitation to come down to the cities from the, the villages if, if they ever wanted to come and try out the game in, on a real tent, on a proper full-size tennis court down in the, uh, in the cities. And uh, I've just done my 25th trip to Nepal and uh, ended up meeting a, a lovely girl on one trip, third trip, working in a, um, in a place of accommodation where I stayed. And uh, two years later, I tracked her down and said, do you want to be my PA in Nepal? Which she said yes to. And we worked for about six weeks, and then I ended up getting married to this girl, and now I've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. And uh, we've just taken the whole family back to Nepal to visit relatives and uh, show them where Dad used to work at the, uh, at the National Tennis Centre, and also I used to work for the Armed Police Force, teaching the Inspector General how to play tennis as well and uh, we ended up just uh, riding elephants riding an elephant chasing a rhino down in the jungles of Chitwan 
Uh, ended up patting a rhino, rhino as well, rhinoceros. And uh, what else did we do? Oh, we went and taught in the schools for a couple of days. Also taught them AFL football and uh, wasn't teaching tennis this trip except we had a rooftop tennis court back in Kathmandu where they wanted me to do some coaching so I went back there and did that. But uh, really this trip, last trip, has been just for the family to show them their relatives and where mum and dad got married and where we met themselves and uh, that's what this last trip was about. So what was it about Nepal from the first time you went? Uh, the scenery is just phenomenal. Um, it's like a cigar-shaped country. Um, along the top edge, the north edge, you've got the giant Himalayas. You've got 10 of the highest 14 mountains in the world. There's 14 mountains in the world above 8,000 metres, and 10 of them are in Nepal, uh, which means you get low hills, and then you get bigger hills, and then you see the clouds, and then you see mountains above the clouds. Um, and then in the south, along the south of Nepal, you've got jungles. So you've got elephants, rhinoceroses, tigers. What have I left out? Elephants, rhinoceros, tigers, or oh, crocodiles. We'll certainly leave it uh, along, all along the, the south end of Nepal. So uh, you've got two very different areas. And then most of the population live in the middle between the Himalayas and the in the jungles, which is called the terai, which is sort of like small hills, and that's where they grow their rice and and uh, villages, and uh, that's basically what how Nepal is set up. And you just thought, I want to come back here. Oh, the scenery brings you back. I guess the people too, but but uh, um, I just loved walking in the Himalayas, uh, trekking for days, and and uh, seeing these most amazing mountains. The, I believe they're the newest mountains on earth. They're certainly the highest and they're, they're, they're getting higher every year, but they're, they're so much, you know, they're the highest mountains in the world. They're, uh, they're just phenomenal. Phenomenal. There's a, there's a saying in Nepal, um, you don't fly through clouds in Nepal because the clouds have rocks in them. <laughs> and the, the rocks go higher than the clouds. They're just, they're just um, it's, you can take a photo and it just doesn't do it justice because until you're there, you just don't realise how big they really are. They're just, just amazing. They're like, I call them skyrockets. They're just amazing to see the height of the mountains. You can be in the very border of Nepal, 100 kilometres away in the south, and you still see the mountains above the clouds on the north border of Nepal from 100 kilometres away. Uh, it's just amazing how far you can see these mountains from. So did you think it would end up being how it's evolved like from the first time you went no all the 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 first trip i actually booked a mountain flight because i heard you could book a mountain airplane flight that leaves very very early in the morning before the winds come up and the weather changes and you fly across to the him to the himalayas then you fly along the himalayas to mount everest you do a u-turn and you come back along the himalayas and you fly back into Kathmandu. And I thought, my first trip, I thought, I'm never going to come here again, so I'm going to book three flights. And little did I know that, of course, you don't fly to the Himalayas if the weather's bad in the morning because planes crash in Nepal all the time. They've got a terrible record, but the weather's very terrible too. And so, um, and when I found out about the flight, I thought it was about, from memory, I thought it was about $1,500 US a flight. I thought, oh, well. I'm only going to come to Nepal once. I should book the flights. When I got there, they thought I was bringing 19 people with a language difference, and I'd actually booked the whole plane. <laughs> so we, we cancelled that, 
and I, then I found out, of course, they don't fly if, 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 if the weather's bad. So after the first mountain flight, I was so impressed at the flight that the next day I'd booked a guide and I was on a plane to Lukla, one of the most dangerous airports in the world to land, which has a cliff at one end and a mountain at the other. And I actually walked halfway to Everest on my first trip in Nepal. Um, what do you mean? I left my five-star hotel in Kathmandu with all my luggage, went to, went to the trekking company that was booked the mountain flight and said, booked a flight from Kathmandu to Lukla Airport, which is the gateway to the Himalayas, to Mount Everest, and walked for two days to Mount Everest to see Mount Everest on the ground. I was so impressed after seeing it Towards in the air. Towards the base camp. Towards base camp, yeah, to Namchi Bazaar, which is 3,400 metres, so it's your first height that you really start to feel altitude. And I, I, I hadn't told them, I'd, I'd left a Do Not Disturb sign on my hotel room, and after a couple of days, my five-star hotel, they, they went in a room, my room because they worried about what had happened to me. They hadn't sighted me. And they found a trekking paper on on the bed about where I'd... And they, so they rang the trekking company. And they said, oh, he's just going to have a look at Mount Everest for a couple of days. He'll be back. <laughs> so they charged it to my credit card, which was really upset my room, just in case I didn't come back. So I thought that was pretty funny. But, uh, yeah, a couple of days later I was back and I'd seen Mount Everest on the ground and that was in September and I'd real, I knew straight away then that at the end of that year I was coming back to, to walk all the way to base camp Everest, which I did. And what did you do for the memorial for your wife? Ah, well, that was... um, They have a thing called a chorten, which is just big stones on top of each other, in smaller stones at the top. And um, I basically built a a chorten uh, next to the other chortens where people who had died on Mount Everest or climbing Mount Everest, I actually built that in the area where all the other chortens were and uh, bored my eyes out that day. but that was on the way to Mount Everest for the first time. And, um, yeah, there's a sort of a small village you walk into not not far from Mount Everest that there's just Chortons along the mountain ridge all the way along. And uh, it's certainly a, a place where you reflect on your life and the lives of the, so many people that had lost their lives on Mount Everest. And, um, yeah, so that was the, the first time. Um, Mount Everest... It is just a mountain, but it but it it is the highest in the world, and it's, it's there's just so many stories about Mount Everest. Um, when I'm in Nepal now, from from walking the Everest region, or certainly in the Himalayas, I'm always thinking what could fall on top of me, or what could break underneath me, because if you're walking on ice, or you're, you're walking on hills where you can get rocks falling down on you, um, people have died in the. It's it's not just a walk in the park. It, it's actually quite dangerous. Um, couple of yaks had a fight and pushed one yak pushed another yak off the cliff and if you get caught between those yaks you could be going off the cliff too it's it's not just like a normally a normal park that you can go for a walk in but some people treat it as such and uh, a Japanese group because they they camped at a spot and rocks came down in the middle of the night and just squashed them all um, you hear lots of stories there were people being carried out that had got too high in altitude too fast they had altitude sickness and they were being either dragged out on the back of a, a horse or a, a mule or carried out on the back of Sherpas just to get them back to low altitude again so that they'd survive um, walking at altitudes it's sort of like a hidden danger because you, unless you know exactly what altitude you're starting at and how far you're travelling up each day and how 
how much altitude you've increased over a couple of days, you've really got to be aware of that because it, the last thing you want to have to do is to go higher before you can get lower because, if, because then you're going to get a lot worse before you can get down to lower altitude again. And it catches, catches a lot of people on, the, on those treks. So were you prepared the first day you started um, wandering towards Everest? Not, not as, I knew the altitudes, so I, in that sense, but then I started studying all the, all the disasters in the Everest region, uh, all the things that had happened to people and how they happened. Um, and yeah, and, and knowing what altitudes you're going to be at at the different towns and at the end of the day and, and uh, climb high during the day and come back down again. And after, um, The other thing I probably really realised is if you're in a group, you've got to keep up with the group and that's when it's, you're more vulnerable than anything else because everyone in a group has a different natural body biorhythm or, and you've got to have enough blood being produced in your body that you'll have enough blood to get enough oxygen at the higher altitude later that day. And if you go up too fast, you, you won't, you, your brain can start to swell, your lungs can start to swell, um, and you're not getting enough air for, for what you need to. Um, so you, you've got to take it seriously. No, I don't think everybody... Most people take it seriously, but I think there's some people that they just want to get to see Mount Everest Base Camp. No matter how sick they are, they still want to keep going, and that's where they... It's not almost like that summit fever. They, they want to get there because they've, they've come so far to get where they have, they want to keep going. And you've, you've got to be really aware of your health when you're on those sort of trips. So how did you go going to base camp? Um, first time I did have a bit of a headache at just a minor headache at base camp um, basically you shouldn't go up more than 400 meters a day and for every three days you go up 400 meters so 1200 meters you have an extra rest day at, on the fourth day at this well you might go up higher during the day but you come back to where you started at, at the end of the day and then you start it again you start building yourself up again um, since then I I haven't had a headache on any of the treks uh, because then I learned to have my own trekking team, my own photographer, my own porters and everything. And don't, if, you're, if you're not in a group, if you want to stay an extra day or you feel you should stay an extra day somewhere, you just stay there. And the other, the other thing is just, just, just enjoy the views. You don't have to rush anywhere. Um, you just enjoy the journey rather than rushing to the next location for the end of the day. So what's the highest altitude you've hiked to? Um, hiked to or climbed? There's a difference. Hiking is about five and a half thousand metres. Um, so that's Everest Base Camp. There's some other camps I've been to that are around that five, 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 six. Um, your, your first climbing summits in Nepal, uh, there's some lower summits you can climb that are around 3,200 metres Poon Hill. There's Top and Amchi Bazaar is only around 3,400. They're great views, but they're not summits. They're just, well, Poon Hill is, but it's it's a little hill. Your first real climbing summits, uh, Island Peak, which I think is from memory, top, top head, 6,100 metres, 6,200 metres. And then Mera Peaks, your highest climbing, tra- training climbing peak, which is around 6,460 or 640. Um, and so you've done Mira all these? No, I haven't done Mirror, but I've done I've done Island Peak, which is the lower one. So that's um, when you need like the grand ponds and whatever. After you've called. after you've done those, then you start looking at your seven thousands, 
if, if you want to build up to eventually to your 8,000 metre peaks. But it also gives you body an idea of um, you're climbing through ice and snow, so you need crampons on your shoes, you're clipping onto a rope, you, you've got to know your basic climbing skills. You, you, you can learn them pretty quick because it's still they're still like walking peaks as against real technical climbing peaks, but it gives you a feel for altitude, it gives you a feel for is this what you really want to be doing rather than being stuck up on one of the real high mountains and and you're not you're less prone to avalanche on those two lower peaks but they can still have crevasses uh, which you can fall into so you're still going to be very aware of what you're doing so are you into the climbing bit i was but i'm too old i wish i'd done it when i was younger um, and i've done training courses with andrew Locke in the snowy mountains since and he's climbed all 14 mount 14 8,000ers to the summit. He's the only Australian that's done it, and he has training courses in the in the snowy mountains during the snow season here. Uh, amazing guy. Um, he's climbed all 14 mountains above 8,000 metres without oxygen, except Everest. He's climbed Everest twice, but he did have oxygen. I believe he was guiding other climbers or helping other climbers when he did that. And when you're helping other climbers to the top of a mountain, you need to have oxygen in case they get into trouble you have to stay there longer than you normally would uh, but like Mount Everest now is a joke because you could have 400 climbers trying to climb on the one day and they're all stacked up like a lion on the mountain and real mountain climbing is not just clipping on a rope and getting pushed to the top by your Sherpa it's climbing up by yourself and um, alpine climbing it's uh, there's a lot of people now getting paid to be pushed to the top of mountains rather than which causes danger too because you Everyone's taking longer to get to the top. They're all running out of oxygen. There's, they're going to get up to the top of the mountain late. There's too many people on the mountain. You got people going both ways on that are clipping on a rope. It's, it's uh, being on, on paid, Everest anyway. Being paid by who? Well, you can pay anything from. I'll try and get this right. Probably from thirty thousand to one hundred thousand to climb Everest, depending on what you want at camp. Um, whether you're going to have a library at camp, whether you're going to have your own, how many Sherpas you're going to have to help you get up the mountain, if you, or if you get into trouble. Uh, but they all pretty much clip onto the same ropes because the ropes are so expensive to have ropes from, say, Camp 1 or Camp 2 up to the top of, of Everest that all the companies share the ropes. They cost thousands and thousands of dollars to have the ropes for the expeditions. And you can't use last year's ropes because the sun sun degrades them so if you clip on a last year's rope there's a chance the rope's going to snap what's so special about the ropes um that's what stops you falling off the mountain or sliding down the slope if you slip <laughs> but, but why are they so expensive they're like because they're kilometers long and they've they've, they've um when you're on a mountain and and you clipped on a rope that's that's if you slip it's going to keep you on the mountain i mean you've got your ice axe you can dig into the snow but if you go off the cliff and you got there's a there's a cliff on everest and i haven't been to it but it's called rainbow gully because that's where everyone falls off and all the down suits all the colored down suits are at the bottom of the gully where everyone's fallen off the mountain it's called rainbow gully um people die are going to die every year on everest there's going to be someone's body that doesn't handle or they or they slip or they're trying to get around someone you meant to um, clip on ahead of someone and then unclip the other clip so you're always clipped on the rope by one clip at least but it doesn't always work out like that 
And how do the local people feel about all the tourism coming in for Everest? Well, tourism is a huge part in Nepal. They don't get a lot of income from other sources. Um, and most of the businesses are geared for tourists now, certainly in, in the Everest region and the Annapurna region. This, the streets full of trekking shops and, and places for tourists to stay. That's, that's what brings the money into the country. Um, um, sure, you're going to get some locals that... I guess you're going to get two sides of the story, but look, the people in those regions... Um, I guess everybody in Nepal, being such a poor country, is happy to get money from tourists through business because they're not really going to get it from their local people. Um, but there's always going to be someone that's... There's the environmental side, I guess, that... that uh, the rubbish that it brings in, the plastic bottles that have come since tourists have been coming to carry all their drinks. Um, the, the landfill problem in these beautiful areas, is it's got to be a problem the more people that come in. Do many Sherpas die climbing? Um, I think probably more Westerners do. Um, they, work, they certainly work very hard. I used to be under the impression that the Sherpas go up in the really bad weather to get the ropes up so that when the Westerners come, they can go up when it's the good weather and the ropes are already up. But the Sherpas don't go up unless it's good weather as well. And I didn't know that for a long time. And that's, I thought that was, you, you understand what I'm saying? You thought they were like invincible. Well, they only climb in May because that's the best time for a climb Everest when the, the, the strong winds leave Everest and head north into Tibet or China as it seems to be called now and uh, so the mountain's pretty still and that's when they're trying to get the opening to climb the mountain when there's not the strong winds that would blow you off off Everest and so that's always May normally the last weeks of May so they normally get there April to start training March April to start acclimatizing to climb Everest and the Sherpas on the good weather are taking the ropes up and the supplies up to the camps so that the so that when the, uh, shall we say, the western climbers arrive, they, uh, the ropes are in, in, in advance and, and uh, they're not carrying the gear up, the Sherpas are. But um, a Sherpa can make, I think it's six times the average wage by working for, for those, those weeks. And the, the more weight they take up and the higher the camp that they go to, they get paid extra for taking more to the top. But to me, the Westerns aren't climbing there. They're, they're just rocking up and getting everything given to them. And I'd like to see the Westerns climb with their own rope. <laughs> That's but, what... Because... Oh, yeah, because I told you I was hiking the Himalayas in September hmm. in India, though. Hmm. And my... The uh, The guy. Yeah. yeah. The, um, Basker, my guide, yeah. he, he'll be so annoyed if he hears this conversation, me being like, what height have you climbed to? Because he's like, it's not about the height. No. It's about how challenge, like there can be pa- challenging peaks. It's about how technical it is. So there can be higher peaks that are easy, but lower peaks that are challenging. He's like, oh, why are you so obsessed with like the number, the height of the, of the peak? Yeah, well, and of course now it's become how quickly can you climb all 14 mountains because I hate to admit that this is a relative of mine, but my wife being Nepali, her relative, uh, 
has changed everything by climbing all 14 mountains in less than six months and most people used to take 10 to 15 years to climb all 14 mountains and because he, he's Nimsdai's Persia Pun Magar has climbed all 14 mountains in less than six months to the summits now it's become a wow a, yeah it's he's... it's unbelievable what he's done but and he wasn't Sherpa he was actually born in my wife's same valley same caste but he actually grew up in the jungles of Nepal down south where there's no mountains and that but he went and worked for the SAS in in England and uh, came back very tough in the in the mind and has done things that no one else has done before and uh, was very successful and also very lucky that uh, the to that when he did climb there were no avalanches or things that could because sometimes people try to climb a mountain and it's just the wrong time to be there so they have to come back two or three times before they finally get to climb it for the weather to be suitable for the mountains that they're climbing um, and does your wife like Australia <laughs> well you're bouncing around with the questions uh, well we've just been in Nepal for a month so uh, at the moment everything's very ne Nepali we just had a huge Nepal function on Sunday um, is there a big community here yes there is uh, here, Sydney, and uh, Hobart, I believe, too. Actually, I was meant to have momos for lunch today in the city. <laughs> Is that right? Where are we going to go to get them? Oh, I don't know. Somewhere. I should take you to dinner to the. I'll something. take you to dinner to the best Nepali dinner with the family. You can come and meet the family. We'll take you to the best Nepali restaurant in Melbourne. Cool. We'll organise that. Where is it? It's in East Melbourne of all places which you wouldn't think um, interestingly this is changing the story a little bit the chef that owns the restaurant he used to own another restaurant and after my second trip to Nepal I used to go to this restaurant to have meals and one night he said to me have you been to Pokhara and I said what's Pokhara and he said it's the most beautiful place in Nepal and so my third trip to Nepal I went to Pokhara and on this trip yes it was beautiful I've now built a, f a house there for the family which is where we live in when we go to Nepal now I met my best friend in Nepal a day after I arrived in Pokhara who then became the police inspector or the inspector general of the armed police force in Nepal and I met my future wife two days later and, and uh, now my two young boys are in the same school as this guy that owned the restaurant that said you should go to Pokhara, so I blame him for all, all of this. Wow. So, uh, and uh, it turns out I've known his brother for a long time too, who's building a new Sheraton hotel in Nepal, but I had no idea they were brothers until just recently. And uh, so it's a funny how small the world can be, but yeah. Okay, you're going to be annoyed at me for jumping around again, but we haven't talked about real tennis. Oh, real tennis. Another big part of your life, right? Yeah, look, real... T Most people aren't going to know what real tennis is, but real tennis was the original game of tennis. It was originally called tennis because the, the original name for what most people call tennis was lawn tennis. And so there was tennis which Henry VIII used to play, and then there was the modern game that Federer played, which used to be called lawn tennis, now just called tennis. 
So they started calling the original game Real Tennis or Royal Tennis so that it didn't get confused with the game that used to be called Lawn Tennis, which is now just called Tennis. Um, Real Tennis was played by the French kings and by Henry VIII, and there's only about 50 courts left in the world. The rackets are still wood. The balls are still made by hand because it was one of the first racket and ball games where you didn't use rubber balls because rubber balls hadn't been invented at that stage. Um, and the original game of squash was the other game, which was called rackets, not to be confused with racket ball, because the proper name for squash is actually squash rackets. Now, squash rackets uses a black rubber ball, but the original na game of squash was called rackets, which is like hitting a golf ball around a a white ball around a giant squash court about four times the size. Um, anyway, I got involved in the history of the game to find out about these early games, not realising they were still played. And to my surprise, they were still played. There's quite a few courts in Australia, England, France and America, the same countries of the Grand Slam of lawn tennis. So while I was travelling to see lawn tennis courts and play tournaments. I was also playing royal tennis at all these different clubs around the world. And uh, I managed to get a job at the Royal Melbourne Club as an assistant professional, which is how you start. And what an, an assistant professional does is learns the game, learns how to string wooden rackets, learns how to make the balls, which are cloth in the middle, then you've got a string of symmetricals. You've got to learn to pull a symmetrical string pattern over the cloth that you've made into a round ball shape and then you have to stitch the covers on every couple of weeks because they get worn off from playing tennis the same way that lawn tennis balls do except royal tennis rackets are strung at about 120 pound whereas lawn tennis rackets are only strung at about 55 to 60 pound so the strings of a real tennis racket have a lot more cutting effect on the balls and they're much heavier so that that's why the covers on the real tennis balls have to be restitched every couple of weeks. Now luckily they still use the centre of the balls otherwise you'd be remaking a set of balls constantly which you tend seem to do anyway but a, a set of balls for each court on a real tennis court is about 70 balls in a set because you can't just go and buy a, a packet of real tennis balls because they're all handmade. So the club has sets that they're using and then they have the next sets being made for when those first sets wear out. So have, I have I lost you with all really, of that? <laughs> really expensive sport to play, basically. Um, probably the biggest difference of real tennis is you pay for your membership, and then it's, a, and then you pay for every time you go on the court as well. You pay for your court time, and then you pay for your restrings. And now, I didn't mention that the original game of real tennis has walls around the court, so the balls are solid like cricket balls, and you've got walls around the court. So you can actually break your rackets if you if you don't keep your racket um, off the walls. But also the balls are heavy enough to break your rackets pretty pretty quickly anyway. So you're going to be replacing your equipment, your rackets, unlike lawn tennis where you've really got to throw them to break them. But your your real tennis rackets can break just by using them properly. So uh, a real tennis racket can set you back four hundred dollars. So you have a few of those because you might break a string during a game. So. Equipment can get quite expensive in real tennis. And then you've got your, your club memberships, then you've got to pay for your court time to get better. And time, unlike lawn tennis, where once you're a member of a club, you can go and play on the court. In real tennis, you've got to book your court uh, and pay for your court time. And then if you're going to have a professional, you're going to pay for your professional to teach you and practice with you as well.
And so you got into playing. I did. I, look, I was, I was, I was looking actually um, for a part-time job to save some money to go and play lawn tennis to travel overseas lawn tennis, and I saw a job advertised in the paper for for a ten, for for a tennis job. Now they they don't say it's real tennis when you go there, but you get shocked when you walk in there because you realise it's a totally different game. So real tennis players. They tend to get players from other racket sports that have got a history in racket sports. Um, the guy who's been current world real tennis champion for probably he's in his, I think he's in his, Rob's in his fifties now. Since he's been world ch- champion, pretty much since the late eighties, he was actually Tasmania's lawn tennis champion. Um, the previous world champion before that was a top squash player. Uh, Wayne Davies, who was also an Australian, these are the first two Australians to become world champions uh, in real tennis. Um, so another player was who was a real good real tennis player for Australia was um, he was Australia's badminton champion. So over the years, they've got players from other racket sports who've been intrigued by the history of being the first racket sport ever, and so they've come into find out about the game and ended up playing it and been quite successful at it. Um, a real tennis court or playing real tennis with the rules, it's a bit like playing lawn tennis, squash and chess on a court with four walls, sloping roofs that you, you serve the ball up onto a sloping roof, um, a big sloop, big sloping net that's five foot at the sides and three foot in the middle, golly what's that metric, big high net. Um, and the court's actually bigger than a lawn tennis court. Um, and then if you hit the ball into a hole, you and you, that's Yes, and the court's not symmetrical. It's not the same at both ends. And you hit the ball into like what looked like windows on the court. And on different points, you play a different set of circumstances. Lawn tennis, you're always using the whole court. In real tennis, sometimes you can use parts of the court and sometimes you can't. Um, but I could talk about that for hours, and there's certainly not enough time here for that one. Yeah, they're called wow. galleries, by the way. The windows are called galleries, and, and the monk was called the grill. In, in the old days, it came from the, the monasteries of France, and that's where the monks used to talk to the outside world, they believe. That's where... Are you talking about a picture of a monk, or with a, they've got a monk in the corner? You've seen that somewhere? No, you've heard me say it. No? You mentioned a monk? No, no I didn't mention didn't a monk. Where did I get that from? <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll, have to, I'll have to listen back later to see where that came from. Okay. Last three questions. Oh, or is okay. there anything else you want to say? The quick ones. Go on. <laughs> How do you stay grounded every day? How do I stay grounded every day? I don't think I do stay grounded every day. Um, probably my young boys and my beautiful wife keep me grounded. Um most of what I do these days I've done pretty much everything that I wanted to see in the world and do certainly tennis wise and uh, now it's just great to have my own family with my own children which I never had and is there a book that's had a big impact on your life um, a book handbook of tennis Paul Douglas that's a great book if you want to learn lawn tennis no matter what era um, that's probably it's probably on the shelf behind me. there's all these tennis oh. books we're in the library there's all these tennis books I have me. a massive tennis book collection and I have a massive 
old wooden rack collection. But uh, out of them all, probably Handbook of Tennis. I got out of all the books, that's probably the one I got the most out of. Ah, there's one other book that beats that. Um, Rod Laver's book. At school, I used to go to the library every lunchtime and read it, take it out at lunch, and then I'd give it back at the end. And at the end of the year, I'd taken it out so many times they gave it to me. <laughs> and I've got Rod and Rod Laver's signed it for me now, with a, with an inscription in the front. That book had a huge effect on my life. Last question. What three words describe the best version of you? Three words. Um, Charitable. Patience. Teaching. Amazing. Thanks for coming on. We're done. Yeah, I'll have to listen back and see which bits need to be edited out. (laughs) Thank, Thank you for asking me, Delia.